morning, Wilton Hills. So good to see all you here this morning. and So good to just know that some of you are joining us online. It's good to be sharing this moment together. Why don't I clean my glasses before I get up here, Mary? I, don't, I never think about it until I get up here. And all of a sudden I notice they're all smudgy. Like you guys are all smudgy. I don't want you to be smudgy. So I got to take my smudge out here. All right. Hey, um, uh, thanks to Paul and Dan and Shauna for their incredible job last week and the week before that. Weren't they, weren't they incredible? I think, I, I told Shauna that, you know, she's better than Oprah. When it comes to interviewing and stuff, she's just, she's got it going on. Uh, that, that was great. Uh, I, I, I want to I give a praise out to, to, to God this morning because it's been five days and, since I've heard my last political ad, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus! I, I, you get so sick of it. It's like, ooh, vote for this person. They'll destroy America. You know, they'll eat your babies. It's like, gosh. So hallelujah. Thank God for that. So we're, uh, uh, as Dan noted a couple weeks ago, we're finishing up our Sermon on the Mount after having been in this for almost three years. And uh, this last section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it taps into what's known as the two ways tradition. And you find this in ancient Judaism, and it's widespread, that they, they, teachers teach by, by contrasting these two different ways. The path that leads to life, the path that leads to death, and, and, and so on. And so um, we're, we're going through that. But before I, I can tap into the two ways tradition, I, I, we have to deal with every verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I, I'm going to start with verse 12 in chapter 7, which is not a part of the two ways thing. It's just kind of a standalone and then we'll get into this two ways uh, teaching uh, after that. So here's what it says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. This kind of sums up the law and the prophets. Do to others as, you'd want them to, as you would want them to do to you. This is what's called the golden rule. And you find it everywhere. I mean, in fact, I've read that this is the most, the most common widespread teaching in all the world's religions. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Sometimes it's put in the negative form. Uh, don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done to you. But Jesus st- states it in the positive form. Intentionally do to others what you'd want them to do to you. And here's the, 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 uh, the, the, the assumption in the whole thing. Do to others what you want them to do to you if you were in their shoes, if you were in their shoes, what would you want done to you? Well, in everything, do that to others. See how that works? So, for example, if, if you were to, for whatever reason, find yourself to be homeless and, and uh, having to live every day trying to figure out how you're going to get your next meal and having to deal with the, the cold in the winter, you have to have the makeshift tent that you're in, whatever. If you were in that situation... What would you want someone to do towards to you? Would, would you want someone to perhaps invite you to come and be part of a tiny home village where you can have your own home and be part of a community? And the answer is, of course you would. And that's why we raised this money for the settled community, and that's why we had some folks here put in hours and hours and hours to help build these homes. And now we have this amazing community over there by Lake Phelan, uh, this settled community where, yeah, they've got six homes there, and it's just beautiful. I'm telling you, it's just magnificent. And I, I, I just, I hope this thing just replicates itself and keeps on going on, because it's a thing of beauty. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's an honor to be part of it. 
But see, do to others what you'd want them to do to you. If you were homeless, you'd want a home. And so let's provide homes for the homeless. Here's another example. If you were in an accident or were fighting some kind of disease or for any other reason needed blood, would you want someone to have donated blood so that you could stay alive? And the answer is, of course you would. And so since that's what you'd want done to you, do that towards others. Uh, And that's why we're doing this blood drive. And that's why I encourage people to, if at all possible, to be donating blood because there are people whose lives depend on it. I really think it's Kingdom 101, you guys. It's like, you know, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's our mandate. Live in love as Christ loved us. Well, he shed his blood for us. Can we not shed our blood for others? And this is, this occurs to me, the most literal way that we can follow Jesus is giving our blood for others. Now, I know some people can't for physical reasons, psychological reasons, whatever. I got that. Uh, and, and so you just have to find other ways of sacrificing for others because this is what we're called to do. This is our MO. This is our, 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 our charter. Sacrifice for others. But that just means it's all the more important that those of us who can donate do donate. You have an a, a, a endlessly replenishable source of life. Others are in need of that source of life. Can we share that with them? And so I encourage you, uh, to, if at all possible, sign up for this blood drive. But my point is really not just about our particular blood drive, like a one-off event. Think about this, you guys. Uh, if possible, cultivate this into your life where every three months or so, you're, you're, you donate. This is just what we do. We're the people who give to others who are in need. And this is a very tangible, concrete way that we can do that. So uh, it's a little bit of my soapbox, I know, and I'll get off it right now, but, but really prayerfully consider being part of this blood drive. Sign up if you can. All right. And then we come to verses 13 and 14 in Matthew, and it says this. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy. That leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to receive this message and apply it to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's two ways that people can go. Two ways tradition. There's a narrow and hard road that leads to life. And because it's hard, very few people take it, Jesus says. And there's a road that leads to destruction, but it's easy. And because it's easy, that's the road that the majority take. Now, sometimes the best way to get at the meaning of a passage is just to wrestle with it. And, uh, and just to, like, let it be as problematic as it is, and then take it on. Origen, who's a second century theologian, one of my favorite theologians in church history, <clears throat> he argued that God intentionally sometimes makes things difficult in the Bible so that we have to wrestle with it. Because by wrestling with it, that's how we mature. And he says that the, the, the deepest treasures of God's wisdom are found buried under the ground. you got to dig for them. So this morning's message is going to be digging. I'm going to just raise a problem, and then let's just wrestle with it. Here's the problem. Jesus says the way is narrow that leads to life. And the reason the way is narrow is because, as Dan taught uh, two weeks ago, the way is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says things like this in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow. 
You are the way, not a way. The truth, not a truth. The life, not a life. You're, you're, you're the whole, the whole shabab. You know, you're the, you're the deal. It all goes through you. It's an outlandish claim. It narrows the way significantly. So Jesus is the way. But so if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through him, and if all others go towards destruction, well, among other things, that seems profoundly unfair and profoundly unloving. So imagine a Muslim young lady, she's born to a Muslim country and she's raised in a Muslim home and she's taught Islamic practices and, and she embraces Islamic beliefs and, 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 and they believe Jesus is a prophet but they don't think he's a savior or that you're supposed to have a personal relationship with him. So she never has a relationship with Jesus. She doesn't really know Jesus, the Jesus that, that, that we know in the Gospels. She's never really given a chance. If she ever thinks about the Christian Jesus, well, she identifies that with America and with corruption and immorality and all the rest. And yet, that's all she's ever got. So then she dies? And is Jesus here suggesting that she's going to be destroyed? Because if that's the case, that's just profoundly unjust. It's not your fault where you're born or how you're raised or who happened to witness to you or whatever. It's, or even your basic psychological profile, your, your genetic disposition. That's all beyond your control. And it's unjust to hold someone accountable for something that they could not have any say-so over, had no control over. You might as well damn someone to hell for being left-handed or something, you know? It's just, it's just unjust. It's also just a profoundly unloving. What loving parent who really loves their child would sever their relationship with this child and allow this child to be destroyed because the child was born in the wrong place or raised in the wrong time or raised in the wrong home or taught the wrong beliefs or what have you? What loving parent would do that? Would base the relationship with a child on some contingency, something that was totally outside their control. And I suggest you, no loving parent would do that, obviously. And God, is, his love is far more perfect than any, any human parent is. And so if, if no human parent would do that, if no human parent would do that, then we shouldn't suppose that God would do that. In fact, Jim Bilby, who just gave an incredible message five weeks ago here, my friend of mine, Jim Bilby, he, he, he pointed out that you can't say that God loves, passionately loves everybody equally if you don't believe that God gives everybody an equal chance. If, if, if the deck is stacked against some people from the start, well, then you can't say that God loves everybody equally. Everyone has to have equal access. And since we don't have equal access in this life, obviously, equal access to knowing Jesus and believing in Jesus and all the rest, since we don't have equal access in this life, he pointed out that that, we, that has to happen in the next life. Sometime between death and, and, and the eternal kingdom when it's established, uh, all things that are not completed in this life get completed in the next life. And as Jim pointed out five weeks ago, there's quite a bit of biblical support for that. So that, that raises this question then, and here's the problem. If everybody is going to have equal access to a relationship with God, then what does Jesus mean when he says that there are few who take the road that leads to life? And what does he mean when he says that the multitudes, the majority, take the road, the easy road that leads to destruction? How does that reconcile with a God who loves everybody equally? It's a very, very good question. But the question is actually, the problem is actually worse than that. Because as I showed, I guess it was four or five or six weeks ago, I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, 
I showed there that, that, that not only do, does everyone have equal access to a relationship with God, but, but there's a sense in which on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he changed everything for everyone. And there's a sense in which not only does everyone have equal access, but everyone is already included as being on the inside. And I showed a number of passages several weeks ago. I'll just highlight two here this morning. First uh, Corinthians 15, which says that, Paul says that, uh, since death came through a human, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human. For as all die in Adam, everybody dies in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. All will be made alive in Christ. In Adam, it stands for corporate humanity that is estranged from God, alienated from God. It stands for corporate humanity that's under the deception of the enemy, believing all these lies. It stands for corporate humanity that is dead in our sin, unable to save ourselves. Scripture says we're dead in sin. So as all are in Adam, all die. In Adam, our corporate identity in Adam is death. But as all all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And Christ represents this corporate humanity. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for humanity. He died for us all individually, yes, but also for corporate humanity. And this is corporate humanity that has been redeemed and reconciled uh, and and restored in a relationship with God. As all were in Adam, so all will be in Christ. And in some sense, this has already happened. In some sense, it's already happened for everybody. You see this also in 2 Corinthians 5, passage I just love. Paul says, for the love of Christ urges us on. This is what compels him. This is what motivates him. Because we are convinced that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised, and was raised again. So what motivated Paul? What, what caused him to give up his cushy life as a Pharisee and and to embark on this hard task of being a church planner. He endured shipwrecks and riots and beatings and whatnot. What caused, what led him to do that? And he says, well, it's the love of Christ urges us on. And we're learning something about Paul's picture of God here. Because he says, part of what he loved about Christ, part of what motivated him was that he was aware that if one died for all, then all have died. He loved that. He died for all, and therefore all have died. And so Paul dedicated his life to telling people about this. Hey, you know what? Your old self has died. What died was was the self that was alienated from God, the self that was in Adam, the self that was estranged from God. What died was the self that was deceived and and, and, the self that lied to itself, the self that was living contrary to the way of God. All that has been done away. Everything that could separate you from God's love has been done away, abolished on the cross, and that is true for everybody. Now, most don't know that. But the truth is, what Jesus did on the cross, he did for everybody and changed everything for everybody. The truth is that on the cross, most don't know this, but they are part of this new in Christ humanity. They're part of this humanity that God's not holding any trespasses against them. Uh, part of this new humanity that has God declares all to be on the inside. You are all as you were all in Adam. Now you're all in Christ. Everyone's part of that. Most don't know that. And therefore, most don't believe that. And therefore, most don't live 
consistent with that or to try to get their thoughts aligned with that. But it's nevertheless true. In fact, many of those who do know this and do believe this, their thoughts and their lives don't get aligned with it either. But it's nevertheless true. What Christ does on the cross, it doesn't depend on what our opinions are about it. No, it's just an objective fact. Christ has done this for everybody. And so, notice this. Christ dies for everybody, so the old self of everybody is dead. But then Paul says, he did this so that. Everybody say, so that. You got to say it louder. So that. that. Uh, Very important phrase here. He dies so that. The so that points to the ultimate end game. God's ultimate goal for doing all this. Why did Jesus die on this cross? Why did he stand in our place? Why did he bear our judgment? It was so that now we might no longer live toward for ourselves, but we'll live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. He, he, he died in our place so that not just our status would be changed, which it has been changed, but now our lives and our character and our thinking would be in conformity with this. The end game for God is our character, that we would be followers of Jesus and take on the character of Jesus and take on the love of Jesus and learn how to be you know, obedient to the Father like Jesus was. The end game for God is that our character will now reflect his character. And it's God's end game because, you guys, in the end, everything has got to reflect the character of God. When God establishes his eternal kingdom, the only thing going there, the only thing that will be present there will be God's love. God's love will define every square inch of the cosmos. And so everything about us that is not consistent with that love has got to go. It's got no place for that. And so Jesus dies on his cross so that we might be made fit for the kingdom. We might be transformed in a way where we can dance with God throughout eternity. Our character and his character are now going to be compatible. Our job in life is to be doing this. The Holy Spirit's working in our hearts and, 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 and moving us in this direction. But we have a choice to make to embrace this. And this is the end game of God. And so it's got to be the end game for all of us. Are we becoming like Christ in our character, in our love? and our capacity to forgive. God's end game is for our character to ultimately be aligned, get this now, for our character, our actual experience, to be in total alignment with the truth of what has been accomplished on the cross. The whole job of life, you guys, is becoming who we already are. Becoming who Christ has, has created us to be on, on the cross. But now, our character's got to be brought in alignment with that. And our thinking's got to be brought in alignment with that. And here's the thing. He did this so that we'd be transformed into his likeness. But because it's our character that's got to be brought into alignment, it involves our choice. And it involves our choice because love has always got to be chosen. And so God cannot coerce us into conformity. We have, the Holy Spirit will influence us. He always is influencing us. But in the end, we're the ones who have to say yes to this. To say, yes, I will believe that what Christ did, he did for me on the cross. And I'll, I will take that into my thinking. I'll take that into my living. and take that into my decision making and be conformed to that image. It requires our choice. And because it requires our choice, it's not automatic. And because it requires our choice, in fact, it's not guaranteed. You are free to live against the reality of what God declares for you if you want. And that's just going to make you miserable. But you're free to do that if you want. 
But that's what it's not instant, instantaneous. And part of our job, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a, you're a kingdom ambassador. Paul says you're a minister of reconciliation, right here in the same passage, 2 Corinthians 5. And so part of our job is to look for opportunities to declare this good news that God's not holding anyone's, anyone's trespasses against them. And that what Jesus did down the cross, he, died, he did for everybody. It's changed everything for, for everybody. And, and to, to encourage people to embrace this so that they will no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them. So that they will no longer live in a self-centered way, but they'll rather live in love and be transformed by the love of God that's been, been, been shared to him. So, so the problem that we're dealing with here, guys, it's worse than the fact that if God loves everybody, God, everyone has to have equal access. Uh, the question is this. How can Jesus say that there are few who find the road to life if God is already claiming everybody to be on the inside of this? How can, how can Jesus say that the road that leads to destruction is wide and, and, and that's the road that most people choose if God is already claiming everybody to be an insider in Christ Jesus? How do we reconcile this? Well, here's one way of doing it. Um, I will share you my view on this. You don't have to agree with this. You're free to... Uh, come up with a better solution, and if you do, then please share it with me. I'm always open to better solutions, but as I wrestle with this, here, here's, here's where I come to. Jesus is teaching about the narrow, hard road that we are to embark on if we want to experience life. Uh, that, 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 that teaching only contradicts the teaching of Paul that as all were in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. It only contradicts that if you assume that when Jesus says that the road that leads to destruction, if destruction has the last word, if that's the final thing to be said, that most people are going to be destroyed, then, then, then there is a, then, then I don't see any way of reconciling this. You can't say the majority of people are going to be destroyed and yet also say that as all were in Adam, so all will be in Christ. Yeah, it's true that you can live in contradiction to this and put yourself out, but the default setting is, is changed. Rather than saying everybody's out unless they put themselves in, the way the New Testament presents it is that everybody's in unless you just refuse to accept that and you put yourselves out. But either way, it contradicts this, 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 this idea that, that the majority of people are going to be destroyed. And that calls into question the character of God. Why would God create a world in which the, he's going to lose the majority of people? If in the end, most people will end up being destroyed, then you just can't say, as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. But what if the destruction isn't the final word? It's a terrible word. It's a scary word. It's an awesome warning. And yet, but what if it's not the final word? Now, it sounds final. You're going to be destroyed. That sounds pretty final. But here's the thing. I taught this uh, in a message six, seven weeks ago. I have no idea how long ago it was. It was, it was not too long ago. But um, I, 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 I there noted that and, and showed from Scripture that whenever God brings a judgment— he does it with a redemptive motive. Uh, judgment is never the last word. And, and, and that, that shouldn't be surprises because if God is other-oriented love, and he is, the cross reveals the very essence of God, well then everything God does has got to express that essence. Everything God does has got to express other-oriented love. And so if God is going to destroy someone, which really just means if God's going to let someone destroy themselves because that's how judgments always work in the Bible— if God's going to do that, he does it out of love for the benefit of the other. And so you find in the Bible, often when they're describing God's judgment, they use language of destruction. For example, in, in Isaiah 19, uh, 
there's a prophecy that's given against Egypt. And, and the Lord speaks in really strong terms in this prophecy about how Egypt's going to be destroyed. Everything about their, their structure is going to fall to the ground. The Nile's going to dry up. People are going to starve and all the rest. It's just, you'll be utterly destroyed. And yet when you get to the end of the chapter, Isaiah 19, the Lord says, nevertheless, I will restore you. Nevertheless, I will redeem you. I'll bring you into a covenant relationship which I have with Israel. And, and, and though Egypt at this time was Israel's arch enemy, he says, you and Israel will be together. You'll worship me t- together. And Syria, who's another arch enemy of Israel, is going to join us. And there'll be a highway that connects all three of you guys. And, and you'll all be my people. Well, wait a minute, you just said you're going to destroy them. Well, yeah, in a sense, they were destroyed. But see, they were destroyed so that, so that they might be restored, so that they might be redeemed. Destruction didn't have the last word. It was terrible, and they brought it on themselves. And when God destroys, all God does is let people experience the consequences of their own decision, and it grieves God's heart, but sometimes you got to do that. But whenever God does that and brings judgment on a people group, on a nation, it's so that they might be restored. They might learn from this. They might grow from this. Destruction doesn't have the last word. The coolest example, I think, was found in Revelation 19. I love this. Here is a background. You've got to know this. The kings of the earth in the book of Revelation are the bad guys. Uh, they, they are the ones who work with the beast. And, and, and they are sort of the political wing of Satan's empire throughout the book of Revelation. Kings of the earth are always warring against, fighting against, resisting the lamb. And, and persecuting the followers of the lamb. They're the bad guys. And then Revelation culminates with this mighty battle between the kings of the earth and their armies and the lamb, and the lamb of God and his armies. And here's what we read, part of what we read. 19 through 21 of Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. That's Jesus. Jesus was a rider on this white horse. He had his army there. And the beast was captured. And then it goes on to say, And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse. The sword that came from his mouth and all the birds were gorged with their flesh, the carcasses of the dead kings of the earth. So it's, it's, a, it's a macabre scene. There's this battle. And the kings of the earth are all slaughtered. And the birds of the air come and feast on their flesh. Now this is just an ancient, gross way of, of, of expressing a people that have been utterly defeated and humiliated in being defeated. They're not even giving the dignity of a burial. Their, their bodies are left out on the ground, and the birds come and gorge their, themselves on, on the flesh. It's a gross scene of utter destruction. It's a way of saying they're utterly, utterly, utterly destroyed. But then, curiously enough, in chapter 21, we read this. Here John is describing the, the, the heavenly city. It's just a symbol for this new heavens and the new earth and God's eternal reign, okay? And says this. In this heavenly city, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God, which is just the radiance of God's love, is its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. That's Jesus. The nations will walk by this light, will walk by this love, this radiant love. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. Which is just... 
a convoluted way of saying the gates will never be shut. <laughs> Why do you have to say they'll never be shut by day if there's no night? It's kind of redundant if you ask me. But anyways, I'm not going to criticize John. He's inspired. I'm not. So let's go with it. Okay, so he, the kings of the earth now, they're back. Somehow they're, they're back. And now, whereas before they, they're using their position to glorify themselves and bring glory to themselves and to their nation, now they're bringing the glory of their nation into the heavenly city to, to be part of the light, to be part of this love, to participate in this. They're no longer the nasty guys. It seems like they were destroyed so that they might no longer live for themselves but live for the one who died for them and, and raised them. So what's going on here? What's going on here? There's, there's, there's two clues that really let us in on, 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 on what's going on here. And, and this is so typical of John. Throughout the book of Revelation, he uses some very, very violent images. Uh, images drawn from the Old Testament, images drawn from other apocaly- apocalyptic literature, and, and they're violent. But he tweaks them in a way, he, he, if you pay attention, there's subtle clues that he just reframes these violent images so that they mean something the opposite of what they seem to mean on the surface. So here's clue number one. In Revelation 19, verse 13, which is about 10 verses before the ones that we read, it says that Jesus was wearing a garment that was soaked in blood. Now, that is a traditional image of a warrior. You read about it in Isaiah 60. Yahweh is depicted as this warrior coming back from battle, and he's drenched in this blood. And and, and in the ancient world, that was a a badge of honor for the warrior to come back filled with blood because he's still standing, but clearly his enemies aren't. It's a a prideful thing. Look at all the people I slaughtered. I got covered with blood. And they're regarded as being heroes. So ancient Near East people thought of their gods that way, and the Old Testament authors thought of God that way. So John grabs this image of, of, of a warrior covered in blood. But what's interesting is that Jesus is covered in blood before he goes into battle. What's up with that? What's up with that? Um, See, what John is saying is, yeah, Jesus is a mighty warrior, but this warrior, this peculiar warrior, he doesn't wage war and go into battle by shedding the blood of others. He does battle by allowing his own blood to be shed. He does battle through his self-sacrificial love. Uh, That's how he wins the war. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is about the victory of the cross. How the lamb overcomes by being willing to lay down his life. This is a different kind of warrior altogether. A warrior that succeeds by allowing his own blood to be shed on behalf of his enemies. Who, number one. This is why Jesus is called in the book of Revelation, the lion and the lamb. In Revelations 5, uh, Jesus is this lion, which is an image of a, a militant, messianic conqueror. But this lion is also the slain lamb, the sacrificial lamb. And what John is saying is, yeah, Jesus is ferocious because God is ferocious in his love. Ferocious. This God is crazy with love and he'll go to any extreme to enter into a love relationship with people, even to the point of destroying them if he has to. He's ferocious, but he's ferocious in his love. He's he's a mighty warrior. He fights like crazy, but he does it out of his self-sacrificial love. And then the second clue is this. Jesus has a sword. Every, every warrior's got to have a sword. But this is a sword that comes out of his mouth. For people who take the book of Revelation literally, <laughs> good luck with this passage. Fuck <clears throat> you. I can do it with my hands tight behind me. Fuck you. He'd sprain his neck for crying out loud. 
I mean, he got a picture of Jesus as a samurai warrior fighting people with a sword in his mouth with his hands tied behind his back. Get rid of that picture. I, the sword comes out of his mouth. You find this four times in the book of Revelation. And see, the sword coming out of his mouth, it's, it's, in each instance, it reflects that he's, he, he's speaking the truth. It's about his words. He's speaking the word of God. He speaks truth. And so what we're seeing in Revelation 19 is that these kings are slain, but they're slain by the love of God, and they're slain by the truth of God. They're slain by the blood-soaked garments of Jesus. He sheds his blood for them, and they're slain by the truth that he speaks. And what truth slays is not human bodies, but lies. And so the, the implication here, in my opinion, is that what was slain here was not literal kings. It, what was slain here is the king's false identity, the kings who are under deception, the kings insofar as their identity is rooted in lies, uh, the, the, the kings insofar as they're living in an alternate reality from the one that God declares is true. What is slain here is the false self of these kings, and they're slain so that, so that they might no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them, they might live for the one who speaks the truth for them, they might live for the one who gave his life for them, shed his blood for them. And so what we're seeing in Revelation are the, the, the redeemed kings of this earth, all those bad guys throughout the book of Revelation, now, now they're submitted to the Lord and they're bringing their, the glory of their nations to the Lord. See, if Jesus slaughters by speaking the truth, then what gets slaughtered is lies. And, and, and see, this is what we would expect since God is, his very essence is other-oriented love. If God's going to have to slay people or have to allow people to slay themselves, which is, comes to the same thing, he does it out of love. He does it for the benefit of, of, of the ones who are being slayed. He does it so that they might no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them. So in my view, the two ways that Jesus is speaking about here, these two ways, they're not two ways that lead to different destinations. I think that all destinations lead to the, all, all roads lead to the same destination in the end, and that end is coming into God's presence. Meeting your maker, if you will. Uh, Paul says in Romans 14 that we all, every human being, must appear before the judgment throne of Christ. And there he's using a judicial, legal kind of imagery. Sometimes he uses more organic imagery. Everybody must appear uh, in the presence of God, 1 Corinthians 3. And they'll experience the, the presence of God, the love of God, like a fire that lovingly purifies all that can be purified, but also lovingly burns away all that must be burned away. These two roads lead to the same destination, but they're different. And here's why they're different. Because the road that leads to the experience of life when you come into the presence of God, it's hard. But those folks are ready for it. And so many of Jesus' teachings are about being ready, preparing for this, for the second coming, for this judgment. They're ready for it. So they experience life. Whereas the road that is wide and easy, folks aren't ready for it. And so they experience destruction. And in, in, in this two-way tradition, they speak about these two roads as though they're absolute. You're either on one road or the other. But that's because they want to highlight the, the two different ways we can go. I think most people are somewhere in between. Sometimes we're more on this side. Sometimes we're more on the other side. But, but insofar as we're on the road to life, uh, the, the hard road, the disciplined road, we're, we're on the way to experiencing life. And insofar as we're on the road that is wide and easy and undisciplined, we're on a road that will lead to destruction. See, the people that are on the narrow and hard road, they are learning how to die to their self-centeredness now so they don't have to die to it later. They're learning how to be disciplined now so they don't have to be disciplined later. They're, they're, they're already shedding from their life everything that's inconsistent with the love of God so it doesn't have to be shed later. They're developing the character of Christ now so that when they come into the presence of God, their character is compatible with the love of God. 
And, and there's refining that will be done there, perfecting that will be done there. And maybe there's some things that need to be burned off. But on the whole, they experience life because they're compatible with life. They're compatible with the one who is the source of life. But people who are on the, the popular road, the easy road, well, they're going to be less prepared. God declares them to be in, in, insiders. As all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. God declares them to be insiders. But he does that so that they'll no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who, who died for them. That doesn't, if that doesn't happen in this life, either because they didn't have a chance or the, the person who shared the gospel with them had bad breath or whatever the reason is, um, if it's not accomplished in this life, it has to be completed in the next life be, between death and, and, and the, the, the coming of the eternal kingdom. And the whole thrust of the New Testament is this, that it's in our best interest to do it now because it's only going to be harder later. We've seen that in previous sermons. Either we yield to the Spirit now and learn how to die to our self-centeredness now, or we'll have to do that when we come into the presence of God and meet our Maker. And the New Testament teaches us that it's in our interest, best interest to do it now because it's only going to be harder later on. Either we yield to the Spirit now and learn how to live for Christ and learn how to develop that Christ-like loving character, or we have to go through this burning process later on. And the whole thrust of the New Testament is to say it's much better to have it done now than to do it later We've got to embrace, you guys, it comes down to this. This, this road is supposed to be hard, and the gate is narrow. Um, and we have to embrace that. Embrace the hardness of this, the discipline of this, because while it may be hard now to die to your self-centeredness and, and, and to submit your life to Christ and to live according to his will, well, it may be hard now, it's going to be much harder later. The fact that Jesus warns us about this coming destruction is enough to tell us that that's, it's going to be bad. And so our job is to do it now, to bring our thinking, our living, into conformity with Christ. Whatever won't be in heaven, we'd lose it now. Now, it raises this question, and I've dealt with this before, is do I think that everybody is going to eventually get in, having gone through this destruction process? And the answer is, I hope so. I hope so. Love believes all things and love hopes all things. But here's what I find interesting is that in Revelation, it says that the doors of the city are always open by day and there is no night. So the doors of the, are always open. But yet we're told that there are those who are still outside the city. They don't want to come in. There's this invitation but there are still those who are practicing wickedness, and John mentions you know, different groups of people that will not come in. And they will not come in because they're not compatible with that city. In God's eternal kingdom, only love is allowed to reign. And so they're on the outside. Now there's a suggestion of hope here, because if the kings of the earth could be transformed by being destroyed, well, there's, the hope, there's hope for everybody. But it ends, this is how the story ends, it ends on a note of hope, not a guarantee. And so... I live with us hope, but I know that God isn't going to coerce them, and so they can keep on choosing against us. If, if that is, I think God in his ferocious love will always be seeking them, will be, you know, they'll, they'll get more and more miserable, but because I believe that there's free will involved in this, I can't say that there's going to be a time where God says, I'll in free no matter what you choose. No, you've got to choose it. So I, li- I live in this hope. But I, 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 I give you three takeaways here as we're bringing this to a close. These three, three points I want you to get out of this. Number one, 
God is beautiful. God is absolutely beautiful. God is beautiful. Amen. God is beautiful. I want Many of us were taught this, uh, this idea, I was taught when I first first a Christian, that God is really stingy with his love, and it's only Christians that, that are saved, and everybody else is going to hell, and, and, and it just always struck me as unjust, and I believed it because I didn't know what else to believe, but, but unjust and unloving. But the truth is that God is beautiful. God's heart for every human being is just a passionate love. Uh, he's not stingy with his love. He's not stingy with his grace. He's not stingy with his mercy. He lavishes it on everybody. He does everything that is possible for any being to do, including for God to do. But the one thing you can't do is force people to accept it. But God is beautiful, altogether beautiful. And, and so it's important that we are always checking our picture of God. Like the Apostle Paul, we need to have a picture of God that is beautiful because that's what motivates us to live for God. You know, you can have a scary picture of God and, and yeah, that will affect your behavior here and there or whatever, but you... To the degree that your picture of God is just terrifying, you can't love that God. You might, you know, obey that God out of fear, but you're not going to be transformed from the inside out because only love transforms from the inside out. And our job is to let that love just come into us like the Apostle Paul and let the love of God just urge us on, compel us on to be all we can be in Christ Jesus. God is beautiful. Number two, the story ends. You know, we live in a world that I, is just getting increasingly scary on a lot of levels, climate-wise and war-wise and whatever, but we need to re remember that the story ends spectacularly well. The story ends spectacularly well. Uh, I can't guarantee that everybody's going to be on the inside of this, but I, it, it ends as good as the story could end. Because as all were in Adam, so all would be made alive in Christ. And in the end, this eternal kingdom will reflect the glory of God. Everything and everyone in his creation will be reconciled to God, to themselves, to one another, to the earth and the animal kingdom. And the, the creation will finally be the way God always wanted the creation to be. The story ends spectacularly well. When you're getting discouraged or maybe getting afraid, see the craziness of this world around us, take a moment and just try to envision how the story ends. Remind yourself that it ends spectacularly well. However dark and painful it is here, not here now, it ends spectacularly well. And the third thing, and this is the main point I want to make, is we need to take sanctification seriously. Now, sanctification, uh, you know the word sanctify, it means just to be, made, to be made holy. And sanctification is the process of being made holy. Sanctification is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, and this is the goal of our life. Uh, you know, in some circles, sanctification, living, you know, in conformity with God's will, is kind of seen as a secondary thing because we're saved by grace, so what does it matter? Well, we are all saved by grace, but we're saved by grace so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one who gave us that grace. That's the purpose of the grace is trans to transform us. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, it's, it's a get-out-of-your-criminal-character card. And, and, and uh, God doesn't want to just get us out of prison but keep our criminal character in place. No, he wants to transform us. We've got to take this seriously. Um, if Jesus warns, here's the thing, if Jesus warns about this road that is wide and popular, even if, not, even if it's not the final word, it's still a scary word. Dan pointed this out last night, Dan Kent, that, that the fact that Jesus could talk to Peter, and he later on prophesies that Peter will be martyred, and still, the fact that he says that, that, that the road is narrow and hard, but it's still better than the road, that, that the easy road, the easy street thing, well, he's saying that it's better to be martyred on the hard road than it is to take the easy road, and then have to be destroyed later on. So even if the destruction isn't a, 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 the end game, it's still a terrible thing, and, and, and you want to avoid that because God's love is ferocious. 
And God will go to any extreme to redeem us and transform us, even if it means our, 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 our destruction. So let's end with this question. Folks, our, 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 if this is God's end game, to be transformed into his character, then it's got to be our end game. What's the point of life? In the end, it's about our character. And our character is going to be transformed either now or later. Better to do it now. So ask yourself this question. What aspects of your life right now, and Holy Spirit, help us to be honest, because sometimes it's, it's so hard to be honest with ourselves. Uh, we, 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 we kid ourselves so much. But what aspects of your life right now will not be in the eternal kingdom? In the end, we only take our love with us. That's the only thing that survives the final judgment. Uh, what aspects of your life now, what maybe attitudes that you have, uh, maybe thought processes that you have, maybe behaviors that you have, maybe relationships that you have, maybe certain habits or practices that you have. What will not be in heaven? And if it will not be in heaven, if it will not be in the eternal kingdom, because you know it's not consistent with God's love, with God's truth, or God's will, you know that. If that's the case, then I encourage you to get rid of it now. Now probably if we're honest with ourselves, there's a number of things about our life that, are not cons- that won't be present in the eternal kingdom. And it's, it's really hard to work on everything at once. So let's break it down. Right now, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what is one thing the Holy Spirit wants you to work on? To lose it now. In the, in, in the kingdom, there'll be no self-centeredness. We've got to lose it now. In the kingdom, there'll be no pettiness. We've got to lose it now. There'll be no judgment. There'll be no gossip. We've got to lose that now. Uh, there'll be no self-destructive behaviors. We've got to lose that now. You know, all the things that will be gone, that the fire of God's love will purge, it's in our interest to work with the Holy Spirit and purge those from our lives now. Be seeking the Lord's will on this. What's one thing for you to work on? And I encourage you then to maybe invite other people, people that you share life with, in on this. Hey, I made a decision. that I'm going I'm to get rid of this. I'm, I'm going to stop this. Will you help me in this area? Because it's really hard to change on your own. We, we, everything in the kingdom works better when it's done in relationship with others. What does the Holy Spirit want you to work on? If it won't be in heaven, then our job is to lose it now. Because in the end, only God's love will define every square inch of the kingdom. It's in our interest to lose it now. Hallelujah. Take sanctification seriously. Holy Spirit, on behalf of all the people listening to this message at the present time and maybe in the future, I ask, Lord, that you bug us. We give you permission to just be a pest, to remind us of what our main goal is so that daily we strive to be the most loving version of ourselves, the most godly, the most submitted version of ourselves that we can possibly be. Thank you, Lord, for, 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 for dying for us and, 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 and for standing in our place and for transitioning us from being outsiders to insiders. And thank you, Lord, for doing this so that we might be transformed into your image. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. 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 All God's people said, amen. Yeah. Let's lock it in. Yeah, let's lock it in. That's our... That's our assignment. Now, um, if you uh, don't forget, Tuesdays we've got musings. Uh, Dan and Shauna uh, go deeper with the message. I encourage you to check that out. We got these incredible gathering groups. I uh, encourage you to be participating in those. Uh, if you're going to be here next week uh, and have kids, let us know so we have enough uh, children's workers to be part of that. And uh, anything else? Oh, and we have prayer available. If you're in house here, we've got the uh, prayer. Uh, Ministers will be at the front of the auditorium, and we've got some online. I encourage you to take advantage of that. I did that last week, and it was so beautiful. I just got prayer for, for a need. Really encourage you to take advantage of that. God bless you guys. Go out and love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and love the earth and the animal kingdom. See you next week.